Hi, I'm Rob Jepson, and my mission is to help sales leaders everywhere create record-setting growth in the companies they lead. I'm here to share the secrets of the world's most successful sales leaders. I don't care how big the company or how big the team, we showcase sales leaders that are taking what the market gives and then some. We feature leaders and teams that are beating their markets, winning at crazy rates, and doing it predictably and sustainably. The Sales Leadership Podcast is brought to you by Exvoyant, the one-on-one sales improvement platform that's transforming how high-growth sales leaders use Salesforce around the world. Create one-on-ones your reps will thank you for and use Exvoyant to help your sales managers create unique plans for every rep on your team. Now, get ready for some serious insights from sales leaders that are making it happen. And remember, don't worry, we've got you. Hello and welcome to the Sales Leadership Podcast, where high-growth sales leaders share high-growth practices and tactics. Today, we are joined by Mark Cosiglo, VP of Sales for Outreach. Mark is the architect of one of the fastest-growing companies in the world. Under Mark's leadership, Outreach has literally wrote the book on sales engagement, literally. If you haven't read Sales Engagement, uh, authored by my good friend Mark and Max and Manny, go get, it, go get your hands on it because I'm in it. Mark's team at Outreach is helping sales organizations around the world create better sales experiences and experience new levels of success. And Outreach now has over a billion-dollar valuation as a result. Mark's a fantastic leader. I love his commitment to developing salespeople. I am pumped to have him on our show today, and I'm looking forward to what I know will be a lively conversation. Mark, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us. What up, Robbie Jepp? Dude, I had so much fun hanging out with you at the Outreach Summit Series. First of all, shout out to uh, the Outreach crew for putting on a first-class uh, whole series of events. But, Mark, I already liked you because we'd met at a few places. We talked a few times. But when I heard you break down your secrets to developing reps, et cetera, I knew I had to have you on the show, bro. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, man. I had a great time hanging out with you. It was fun. Let's do it. So let's start by just uh, introducing everyone to Outreach. Uh, why don't you just give us the high level for anyone who might have had their head under a rock, what you guys do out there at Outreach? Yeah, for sure. Uh, Outreach is a sales engagement platform. And think of it like this, Rob, is it's, it's really simple. Is right now uh, there is more noise in the world than there's ever been. People get more emails, you more texts, you got social media, you got your Instagram account, which yours is blown up, by the way. Actually, I don't know because I don't have an Instagram account, nor will I ever. Uh, I guess I'm too old. But <laughs> all this noise and crap going around, and, like, it is super hard for a seller to break through the noise. And then even when you do break through the noise, it's very difficult for people to find the time to evaluate and process what you've said in your messaging to make a decision to do something, even if it's just something as simple as booking a meeting. And so what Outreach does as a sales engagement platform, it helps you engage with your customers in a better, more efficient way so that you can drive more of the outcomes that you need. And then we also layer on top of that the ability for leaderships and operations and managers to see what's working so that they can iterate and make it working a best practice and make it work even better. Well, you're doing great work, man. Your product is, is a killer product. It's easy to use. I, I know that you have some of the most iconic companies in the world using it. Uh, you know, I, I don't mind giving you a shout out. It's, it's the kind of thing that, you know, we use at our organization. We've, we've been a fan of it and I have, I've worked with too many or other organizations that uh, have had great things that for me not to say, if you haven't looked at outreach, give it a look. So yeah, we're lucky to have good customers. You know what I mean? Uh, we, we count ourselves glad. 
So let's let's talk about you before we got dive into the world of sales leadership and we get we have a little fun. I, I'd like for you to just tell a little bit about your story. Our listeners love hearing how do guys like you get started in sales? Did you find sales or did it find you? And how did it lead you to outreach? Because we're in a day now where a lot of people are like getting a degree in sales, but for guys like you and me, that probably wasn't the case, right? <laughs> Uh, I wish there'd been a degree in sales and I think it's super cool that people are doing it, but, but no, that wasn't around when I was in school. I think everybody in the business college at Penn state, which is called the Spiel college of business. Uh, they said, I I'll do anything except sales. <laughs> no uh, doubt. That's how you separate the wheat from the shaft. All the smart people will be like, I'm going to figure out how I can get in sales, make good money, live the life I want to live and not work like a dog making no money. <laughs> yeah, but, I tell you, I got my degree in something else too. And it was like sales was like this entry level job until you could go kind of quote unquote, get your real job. And I'll tell you, I feel so lucky that I fell into it, Mark. Oh, me too. Every day. But I found sales. Sales did not find me. I just told this story to our executive team. Uh, when they were asking me why I'm still at outreach. And um, when I was, I think, five or six years old, I went to visit my uncle in Delaware. And his name was Uncle Bill. And Uncle Bill had older children that were all in high school. And here I am, a little kid. And I'm going through the toy chest of things because I'm bored out of my mind at his house. And my mom tells a story about uh, I got lost. They didn't know where I was and they ran out onto the street and they saw me a few houses down with a wagon filled with toys. I didn't want trying to get people to swap me toys. I wanted from their I love it. So I was, I was knocking on doors, uh, from the very beginning. And then, um, you know, my dad is a, a very successful, uh, businessman. He ran, uh, manufacturing for M&M Mars for many years. If you ate a Snickers or a M&M, you know, for about 20 years, my dad was, had some kind of hand in making that. And, uh, he, uh, was, so I guess we owe your dad a, a thank you. Cause I'm a, I'm a, I'm a fan for sure. You either owe him a thank you or an F you for all the cavities. I don't know. Just, <laughs> but, uh, so I was, uh, uh, he told me I had to get a job when I was 16 and, you know, my dad was well off and I went to a small private school and, uh, you know, I don't know if I appreciated it at the time. I, I deeply appreciate it now. But he said, when you're 16, you will either get a job or I'll drive you to the grocery store and fill out the application and you'll be working there in a week. So I I uh, got a job selling shoes in the mall when I was 16 years old. And that's when I really learned how to sell. And I've sold ever since. What a killer story. And I would say you've come a long way since uh, saying, hey, mate, well, may I help you looking in the men's or women's shoes side to sell them world-class software. It's been a fun ride. Well, you know what, Rob? That's actually the best part of the story is I, I sold shoes for the worst named uh, shoe store in the entire world. It was called the Athlete's Foot. And <laughs> that makes no sense. But uh, one of the things that I was uh, a part-time employee in a high school and I was the best seller in uh, a seven chain store and the reason was i think it was great with customers but was, i didn't stand in the store waiting for people to come around and ask how can i help you i would go into the hallway and start looking at how people walked and say hey do you want to come in here real quick i want to show you how you're walking shows what the, that you're wearing the wrong kind of shoes wow out in the 16 hall, get my customers you did that at 16 
Dude, I did I was I was there to make money, baby. I was there to win. I, was, I had that leaderboard every day. I needed to stay at the top of the leaderboard. I was competing. That's what I was doing. <laughs> I love it. That's fantastic. What a what a what a killer story. So that's that's how you cut your teeth. You were you you were in it, man. And and how how did that end up taking you to outreach? Yeah, so uh, you know, I went through my sales career and I ended up leading about a twenty-five person sales team for a large billion dollar a publicly traded company, billion dollar revenue, publicly traded company that, uh, uh, and I had, you know, 10 or 15 inside sellers on the Eastern seacoast and 10 or 15 uh, inside sellers uh, on in, uh, in Bellingham, Washington. And um, my, uh, I, I'm, that's when I met Manny Medina and, uh, and, and I was going to buy outreach for that sales team. And then Manny and I kind of became friends. And at some point I was like, listen, this, this technology is, and not a uh, nice to have. It's a requirement. So I, I quit my job. I have four kids and a, and a beautiful wife. So that was no small decision. And wow. uh, so I quit my job, came to work at Outreach on 100% commission and uh, sold about a million dollars with a friend of mine uh, that I brought on to in about five or six months. And then uh, Manny asked me to build out this, the sales team. And here we are. We were worth 37 bucks when I signed up at Outreach. We're worth $1.1 billion now. And uh, you know, I get to talk to awesome people like you about sales all day long. It's basically my, my dream world. I love your story, man. And, and it's like I've told you before, uh, I, I think you have done and are doing what so many people listening to the show. We're the Sales Leadership Podcast. We have sales leaders and those that aspire to be. They want to do what you've done, Mark. So first, I tip my cap to you uh, for a lot of different reasons. Um, but second, I want to dive into your blueprint now. How, that, that run from 37 to 1.1 billion with a B, uh, that wasn't an easy trip. That was not just show up and it, and it goes that way, right? No, no. I mean, it wasn't. Uh, so e- when you say it's not easy, it was easy because I loved every minute of it. I worked my butt off. Uh, so it was easy in that sense. It wasn't easy in terms of taking a product that had never existed before and creating a new category right. and, and like working against competitors that sell differently and think differently than you do. And uh, so, you know, all, uh, all of that wasn't, wasn't, um, wasn't easy, but I, I wouldn't have said, I don't think, I don't care classify the whole experience is not easy though. Yeah. Well, I guess what I'm saying is there's a lot of people who think, well, it's that what I call field of dream syndrome. If you build it, they will come. Oh yeah. Brother. No, you've got to go out and fight for everything you get. At least it's been my experience. So, well, you know, I don't, I think that if you get into anything thinking it'll just come, then get ready to make $9 an hour. Cause that's what you make at McDonald's where people just, come. <laughs> so, like if you want to make some real money and do some really cool stuff, like you're going to have to work at it. I, I'm super thankful for my dad. He, he taught me how to work uh, when he didn't have to. Uh, but he did, and, you know, that's, that's, that's what I enjoy doing now. I like to work, man. Yeah. yeah I, I know you do too. <laughs> I do. No. And I have a similar story with my dad, but we're not here to talk about me. That's why I relate to you so much. You're right. We've, we, we do have similar backgrounds in a lot of ways, but I want to, I want to dive into to your approach to, to building and scaling your team. So you, you were doing it. Yeah. You made it happen. You brought a dude on and you started building it out. Now, one of the things I love is you're having record-setting growth, but you're not having to have headcount going through the roof in order to do it. Like your team is growing. Don't get me wrong. I get that. But you're getting more from the people you have. It's not just adding bodies to the mix. 
Can you get into what you think some of the non-negotiables for a great sales leader are? Uh, sure, man. Uh, and, you know, just to finish out that point, I think that there's a lot of people that tie their ego and winning to their headcount rather than True. to the success of the people that are already in their headcount. And I, I 10 times rather my reps make double the money and hire half the people than I would to double my headcount. Like, who gives a crap about that? Dude, that is such a good statement. I mean, let's sit on that for a second. You're right. So many people say, oh, I have this big of a team. But what I love is you would rather have them double their money with half the people to manage. That's that's a very – I've never heard someone say it like that before. Um, How would you – why do you feel that way? I mean, is it just commitment to people? And uh, that's insightful. I've never heard someone say it that way. Well, I think what it comes down to is like um, uh, me – and this is like selfish a little bit, but as me as a rep, like I always felt like if they give me a bigger territory and give me more uh, swings at the plate, I would hit more home runs until there's a point at which like I get tired of swinging and I'll let you know that. But until then, like keep filling me up. I'm your best rep. Keep filling me up. And like, <laughs> listen, we don't have this challenge licked here. Like I got really awesome reps that aren't busy enough. So I don't want it to seem like I'm got everybody floating on 100 but that's my mentality when I go in to solve something is, is one, I want to make sure that my best reps are getting the best accounts. Two, I want to make sure my best reps are super busy. And three, I want a structure where I can still continue to hire, right? So if I can do all three of those things at one time, then I've built an org that can grow, but can also keep my best people happy and earning where they need to be because those are the people that, you know, you really need to rely on to make sure you hit your number and the more of people you can turn into that type, the better you do, which I know that's, that's like what you do, Rob, all the time. It is. But what I love is the culture that that creates. You're creating a culture of we invest in people to help them win. We're not just going to have this thing that hold on, buckle on, buckle up and just, you know, be along for the ride. You're, sounds to me as I listen to you, Mark, when you hire people, you're, in, you're saying we're picking you. We're going to invest in you. We're going to get you to be one of those successful reps, and we're going to do everything we can to make you not just successful but super busy. Um, is, is that created? What's that done to the culture of your sales team? I mean, there's got to be a lot of quest things that I want to learn about with that. Uh, what's that done culturally for you guys? Well, we're making a lot of mistakes. I don't want to make it seem like I got it all figured out. But I think the heart behind what we want to do has always been true, which is we want people to come here and, number one, feel like they're super connected to the vision and contributing to that they're happy. And then lastly, that they're, they're making good money and, and doing what the company needs them to do to hit the, hit the number. And I think that what, what a lot of sales leaders try to do is they create this big, huge spreadsheet that has 20 tabs across the bottom. And there's these formulas that are all interlaced through the thing <laughs> in the room and type, all right, if I have 13 reps and I hire seven reps this year for this one team on in on the East for corporate. Like, what does that do to my number? Oops, that's how I get to my number. And I just don't agree with that. Like, I, I just, I don't like that type of spreadsheet-based uh, lazy thinking is what I think it is. It's just lazy. Like, why would I sit there and, and just hit, oh, I'm going I'm to be a little short. I better turn five people to seven people. Why would I do that when I can think about, Hey, I'm talking to the, my two or three of my reps. They want more meetings. What can I do to increase their capacity and get yes. them busier instead of just hiring two more people? Because that's just late. That's a lazy answer. 
You know what I mean? It's I do like, know what you mean. I call it spreadsheet coaching. It's funny that you already went there. I, 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 I really do believe that people go, they, they fall back to spreadsheet coaching because it's the easy way out. I, I 100% agree with you, Mark. Yeah. I mean, it's like asking your kids, where do you want to go to dinner? And they say Chick-fil-A every time. <laughs> they, don't, they don't sit there and think for like two seconds. Where do I actually want to go eat? Oh, I want to go to the Olive Garden or whatever. All right, well, let's go there. You know, there's just, it's it's like a simple, easy answer. That's like a knee-jerk thing. I'm going to go to my spreadsheet, see what I need to type in. And and again, Rob, like I'm proposing a way that we think and the heart behind what I do. I'm not saying that I have this figured out. or that oh, I got you. It, but like, I think the thinking is what leads to you doing it, right? That's what I was going to say is it's the way of thinking that leads not just to humility, but also the execution. So that's a different way of thinking, and I like it because it's going to buck a lot of the trends. I think one of the reasons you see so many people struggling to get quota is because in many cases they may have overhired. Well, I think in the beginning here at Outreach, I hired four what we called the core four. Three of them are still here. One of them moved on to another company. She got a job offer that, you know, basically she shouldn't ever say no to, right? So those core four uh, people, we just kept – loading them up, kept loading them up. And then when they would scream for mercy, I would hire one person as a release valve. And then when the five cried for mercy, I hired the six as a release valve. And then we screwed up and we tried to manage and grow through the spreadsheet. And that's when I started to come to my conclusion, like this is, this is junky. I got to hire two reps every month when I'm not even quite sure what the other seven reps are doing exactly right to hit their number. Like I'm glad that they are and I trust them, but now I got to give great deals to people I don't really trust. And, you know, that's that uh, I, I didn't like that that environment. I didn't like the culture. I didn't like the, hey, why is this rep still around? And we still have our problems with that kind of stuff. But I, I think that I'm always trying to think in that direction rather than just going back to the spreadsheet and being lazy. Yeah, I dig that. So so that's culturally I like that. I like the different way of thinking. So I'm, I want to dive into now, like, so you got the people that you say are the right people. What are some of the things that go through your thinking since you think differently on how do you develop people in, in as predictable a way as possible? I, I like your approach to coaching. You may have talked about it. And coaching is probably too general of a word for what I'm asking you. There's a lot that goes into developing people on your team. Yeah. What are some of the things in the mark and outreach way of thinking that you look at that's helped you start to figure it out? Um. So let me start with like some mindsets that, that I personally have and that I think are inside of our sales culture to some extent, maybe not quite as much as I believe in them personally, but like that's what a culture is, is some stuff is all you, some stuff is a little you, some stuff is not you at all, but you accept it all because it's the culture you live and work in, right? And Love that. For, for me personally, uh, I believe, and this mindset helps me have the right heart, which is uh, – any failure of a rep is because I haven't supported them. And I had a boss at one time told me like, listen, people can't do the job because number one, they don't know what to do. They don't know how to do it or something is in their way. And my job is to release that. And and so those three things are how I look at it all the time. And I can help a rep control all three of those things. Now, of course, there's the component like I can know what to do. They know exactly how to do it, and there's nothing in their way except for them wanting to watch ESPN Sports Center till noon every day, right? Like, you can't do that. No, well, you can do that if you're really <laughs> good, uh, but most people aren't that good, right? And so, I'm, not, I'm for sure not. Yeah, me neither. Never been. Uh, so I think that um, 
if you have that mindset that it's always your fault, then you're going to really look hard for solutions. Now you have to balance that out with when it's time to get rid of people, right? You can't be, you can't save everybody and not everybody's going to work out. But like, if it's always my fault, then I can control the performance of my team and create programs and trading and enablement and processes and systems that helps get them to be successful. If it's not my fault, then how do I do anything to have control over fixing it? And like, I'm a control freak. I'd rather have control. So I'm just going to make it all my fault. So that's one big thing that like is a mindset that kind of helps me. You know what? I like that, Mark. I felt this way. I've probably said it different than you, but I love the way you've articulated it. Earlier in my sales leadership career, I realized if there's going to be any risk, I want to have all of it. Um, yeah. I don't, I, I, if there's going to be risk, give it to me. You know, I don't want some of the risk. I want all of the risk so I can plan for it. I can execute around it. And, and I like that. That means you are not like pointing fingers out the window. You're looking in the mirror saying it starts and ends here. Yeah. And if I'm not getting the support I need or there's somebody not executing that's a dependency that I have, like I'm happy to talk to that person and call that out and, and, and get that fixed. But in the end, you know, everything that you don't take accountability or ownership of is outside of your control, which means that there's pieces of the solution that you'll never figure out because part of it is not yours or a, to, to be able to figure out if you don't own it. Yeah. Very circular statement, but hopefully it makes sense. Totally makes sense, and I love it. And it's indicative of why you've been able to have success with the people that you've had. I've talked to a lot of the reps on your team, and they've told me that it's been a great experience working there. And it, it's got to be in part, large part, because you create this environment where they can be successful like that. So, yeah. so that's the first thing. It's some mindset stuff like that. I like that. That it's you know you start with that kind of a viewpoint. Then where do you go? Well, then I think that uh, a big uh, a couple big things that happen with reps are there's a lot of areas where a lot of reps are weak, like how to manage your pipeline or negotiations or keeping up the discipline that they need to prospect and keep their pipeline full uh, or like how they uh, do next steps. They're, like there's these big problems that no matter the rep that I've managed, 90% likely that they're going to have these problems and not understand how to, how to do it correctly. And so I try to create processes and systems to help them deal with those issues. And this is kind of born out of my own necessity. I have a really, really bad memory. And I used to, Rob, um, live in Pennsylvania. And off the interstate, there was the, e the exit ramp, and then there was a mile to my house. And in between the exit ramp and my house was a grocery store. And my wife would call me when I would be coming down the exit ramp and say, hey, Mark, get milk. And of course I'd be in my own world and I would drive right past the grocery store and go home and she'd be like, where's the milk? And I'd slap myself on the forehead and I would go get back in my car and then I would go get the milk and then come back. And one day that happened and I was just done with it. And I read this book called Getting Things Done by David Allen that changed my life. And the reason that it changed my life is because it showed me that the reason I was doing that is uh, I was using my brain to hold ideas and to remember everything I had to do rather than to use my brain for what it was created for, which is to have ideas. And so I started creating trusted systems that allowed me to take the knowledge that I didn't need to hold in my mind and put it in a trusted system where it would, my mind knew it was okay, it would get taken care of. And so I create, I'm a very operational sales leader. I always believe a system in a process can solve a problem 
And so that's, and that's built, again, built on my own issues. But that's what I try to do is I try to look at these common problems that a rep has and try to build a system that if you just follow the system, then you won't have the problem uh, rather than say, hey, well, listen, Rob, your, your seat price on that is 20% low, the average. Like, I really need you to get that up. What are some things that you can do to get that up? That rep doesn't know, or he'd make more money by selling it for, for more money. So let's, like, let's create a system to help them. Yeah, you, you gave some examples of this at the uh, outreach summit that we were at. I, I really dug how you systemized uh, that. And that, that actually, as I listened to you, made it so you could actually have more predictability, not just in sales, but in how you developed people, right? Exactly, yeah. I, I think uh, it's the same thing, right? Like if you develop people, you're going to get – better sales and the sales skills will increase. Like if you just focus on one, it's like me saying, Rob, listen, man, uh, I want to make you a better writer. So I'm going to make sure your typing is good. Like, will that help you be a writer? Maybe it's a part of it, but like really I need to like holistically understand what makes somebody a better writer and work with that. And the same Here's why I think you are ahead of the curve, Mark. And this is what I want our listeners to hear you talk about a little bit. So yeah, there's everybody's talking about sales process. Everybody's got different sales processes. They got stages, all that kind of stuff. What you're just telling me though is I think very few organizations, and I shared some of this data at your series, very few organizations actually have that leadership process. We enable salespeople, we have sales enablement, we, we do all these things. But then we say to the leaders, now go out and coach them, go out and develop them, you know, make sure they use the stuff, right? We ask sales managers and sales leaders to do things that are impossible and we don't give them the day to do it. We expect them to have a level of knowledge that literally isn't humanly possible so that they can sit on the witness stand about the 34th biggest deal yes. in the pipeline and read yes. it out through it like they yes. know it, which is ridiculous. You know, and then we, and then we chastise them for not being able to manage all this when they have to have a system outside the system to even have a chance of doing it, which means now they're an operations person in addition to being a sales manager. So right. I, I uh, this is one of my big pet peeves is uh, I, I just really, it, we were just talking about it today here, actually. Just uh, what we ask frontline sales managers to do is typically impossible. So how do you help a frontline sales manager win then? If that's the case, what, what kind of, what's a couple go-to things that you might share with our listeners? Here's some things to help make a, a frontline sales manager go from being in the world of impossible to possible. The first thing I would think about is when you're going to enable a rep to do something, you should think, should we enable the rep to do this or enable the manager to be able to help the rep do this? And like, here's a, a good example of that. Let's say that I'm a med pick in order for, uh, to do my, uh, my deal inspection. Yep. You can train a rep how to do med pick and they can understand it wonderfully and pass some kind of enablement test that shows they understand what the terms are. But then two months later, nobody's really using it, even though everybody was exciting, excited about it. Or I can teach a sales manager how to do deal inspection using MedPick and create something in Salesforce that they have to say, I've done this kind of deal inspection. And then what kind of behavior will your reps then subsequently create? They'll create behavior that makes sure that their conversation about MedPick with their manager goes better. So like, that's a perfect example. Most people would take that deal inspection and train the reps. And you do have to do some 
knowledge increase there. But really where that project lives and dies is the sales manager. And nobody says, hey, sales manager, this is how you need to run your one-on-ones now in order to get your reps to do MedPick. And we're going to hold you accountable to running your one-on-ones that way, knowing that that behavior will transfer down to your reps as you're consistent and rigorous in the execution of it. That is super good. I, I love that. Such a good first place to start. Why do you think more people don't do that then? I just think they don't think. I think everybody thinks, well, listen, we'll tell the reps to do it and they'll do it. And like everybody knows it's not true, but I think still everybody like it's that, but goes back to that lazy thinking. Like they just never thought for a second. Okay. Um, I teach the rep med pick. Then what? Well, then my rep managers are going to have to ask them about it. All right. Well, my manager's going to ask them about it. How am I going to know that they did that? Well, I should have a field on the, the op that the, the rep fills out with the name of the champion. And so guess what ends up happening is reps are just doing that to say that they've done it. And the, the manager isn't saying, hey, why is Rob the champion? How do you know he's a champion? Tell me one thing that he's done that says that he has power and influence. And those critical questions, you don't know if the manager is doing that. Mm-hmm. And so if, so you, once you look at the whole process of what you want done and you look at the failure points, I think that that points to where you need to create the support. So don't look at the failure points and create the support there as opposed to assuming that the failure point will always be the rep. Got it. Yeah, that's really well said because that's why, like I call that dirty Harry syndrome. So many times reps feel like they're at the end of dirty Harry's gum where they're saying, Hey, you got to answer one question. Do you feel lucky punk? Do you? Yeah. Right. And, and that's assuming that the failure points, the rep. And um, I still haven't found one that wants to suck Mark. Have you? Not that I know of. Yeah. I haven't found one that wants to suck, but I have found tons that say I got to switch jobs because I'm not getting the support I need to be developed internally. So I want to shift off that. You, you, you've got to, but some other stuff. I love your thoughts. Like you, you said one of the things that you think most sales managers suck at is teaching a rep how to manage a pipeline. Can you talk about that for a little bit? Cause I thought that was a good, bold statement and you backed it up with some, what I thought was really good insights. Yeah, so um, let me define that, what managing the pipeline is, is it's the ability for a rep to know what to do that drives buyer behavior to move from one buying stage to the next in their journey to become a customer, right? That, that's what, what I mean by managing the pipeline. It's not, do my reps update data in Salesforce? It's not, can they negotiate or can they close a deal? It's not, how good can they do discovery? Those are activities and things that need to happen inside of managing your pipeline. But specifically, it's giving them guidance, training, and enablement to say, all right, in order to go from stage three to stage four, I need to make sure that I get back this security document, for example. If I'm going to get back this security document then and I send it out to them and it's now been two or two and a half weeks and they haven't gotten back to me, what am I going to do? Like, what am I going to do differently other than call or email them? You know what I mean? And like, I think most managers, what they do is they'd be like, hey, you need to give it back to security doc. When are you getting it back? Yep. That's exactly what they do. They know when they're going to get it back. So let's give them a little bit of help and some ideas and some stuff to try so that they can put these arrows in their quiver so that the next time they don't get a security doc back in two and a half weeks, which will be the next month or the next quarter for sure. Let's let them have a few arrows that they can pull out of their quiver and use to like make that happen. And so that's what I mean by that is, is uh, nobody ever takes a rep through how to manage their pipeline because they're too busy trying to be 
manage the deal. And yes. Managing the deal is much different than managing the pipeline. I couldn't agree more. And, and, and this is going to be a little off track, so I want to come back. But I, just this morning, this morning, so you know what we do. We, we sell technology for coaching. And yep. sometimes customers will come and say, hey, Rob, will you, like, listen in on XYZ managers one-on-ones? This manager actually said, Rob, you know, I'm not getting, my one-on-ones aren't giving me the impact that I want. Will you, you know, shadow, will you just listen or listen to these calls or whatever? <clears throat> and this morning I was, I was logged in with this manager, terrific sales leader for a company that I, you absolutely will know. And they were talking about, you know, instead of deals, they were talking about pipeline. They didn't have enough early stage opportunities. They quantified why and they had a good conversation. But then her thing was, all right, so uh, you're going to get three more new ops this week, right? And and the guy said, well, I'll try. And, <laughs> and she's like, wait a minute. It's it's not try. You're going to do it, right? And it kind of stalled there. Now I was like, now I know why the one-on-one could have more impact because she didn't go the one step farther. Let's look at changing this or this or let's do this specific thing. And we had a really interesting conversation at the end, Mark, because she's like, oh, now I see what you're saying. And I think too many times, Mark, leaders don't realize that you got to do a paint by number. You can't just say, go paint, go do, go get more opportunities, go do this pipeline. You've got to help them know what are the actual steps, right? Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Rob, go get a million dollars. Oh, can I get two? <laughs> uh, I don't know, Rob. Can you get one? Like that's yeah, exactly. Like, yes. It, it doesn't like if you just said, well, I'll try. I would have said, well, are, you try, you know, I mean, like when you just substitute the words in for something that isn't easy to go get, like, I think that that's when it becomes a little more commonsensical, like that we can't do this kind of stuff, the reps. And no, I think it's okay for a manager in that situation to say, listen, tell me what you can do to get three more and put them in the driver's seat of creating the plan instead of always giving it to them. But to just say, go do this, if they could just go do it, they would have already done it. Exactly right. I feel the exact same way. And that's why I like what you're saying because, man, they're like, that's why people feel like most of the time, 48% of the time they say they never get coaching, even though 83% of the time the, the leaders say I'm doing it. Only 13% of the time when a one-on-one's done, does the leader, does the rep say that was actually helpful? It's because of what you're saying, dude. They aren't able to say this is what we should try. Yeah, I think that uh, the way I like to do it is, uh, you know, everybody knows about next steps. And, you know, there's this field in Salesforce, two fields, next step date, next step. And, you know, first of all, nobody uses it. The people that actually do fill it in, I I promise you if I went in there, it was either something that was put in there three years ago and is still in there, or the only reason they change it is so that their manager uh, can say that it's up to date and it really doesn't reflect what they're trying to do in the deal at all. It just sounds good. Yep. So it's a broken system. The way I like to do it is I like for a rep to come into their one-on-one for pipeline. We do a half hour pipeline review where we go over every deal over X dollars every single week. And the first thing that's going to happen is reps are going to be like, I don't need to talk about my deals every week. And I'll say, well, we will figure that out in this process. And if that's the case, we won't meet every single week. But until I know that you can do that, we got to meet, right? And I promise it'll be valuable. So then we go, all right, uh, now we do the next step. And the next step is, all right, what is the next thing that you need to accomplish in this opportunity? And reps, uh, you're going to see how bad your reps are at that when you ask them that one simple question. 
they're going to say stuff, well, I need to do really well in the demo, or I need to make sure that they understand the value of outreach. And what's bad is those are things that when you come back the next week and say, did you do this? They're going to answer yes every time. Did you do good in the demo? Oh, man, it was awesome. Did they see the value of outreach? Oh, they totally get it. <laughs> and like, it was so subjective. And so uh, what you have to do is you have to layer on the next question. See, Rob, this is what most leaders don't understand. When you go from being a seller to being a sales leader, you don't quit selling. You just have to sell different stuff that's way harder to sell. You're selling behavioral change management. You're selling the you need to educate yourself and be better yourself. You, you are selling, hey, you got to choose the company over your own interests. That crap is super hard to sell. For sure. You have to sell it the same way you sold the stuff that you sold when you're a great seller, right? So I'm selling to a rep in this process. You need to get better at managing your pipeline. The way we're going to do that is I'm going to educate you on how to think about what to do next in a deal. And if you think the next thing to do with the deal is to get them to understand the value of outreach, you're not thinking about the deal correctly. So then you layer on the next question, just like the next discovery question you would ask if you were selling your widgets or whatever is the next, when they give you a bad answer, you don't say that's a stupid answer. You say, okay, uh, what would the customer have to do to show you that they saw the value of outreach? Oh, well, they would probably book this technical validation call. We would go through and do this, this, and this. All right, that's great. Now, it sounds to me like the next thing that you need to do is you need to get them to agree to that meeting. Yeah, that's what they need to do. Now we have a verifiable binary yes or no thing that we've set out together, and they've helped co-create that through discovery and pro the process of selling them on the idea they need to get better, and then they can go out and do it. We can talk about, like, what happens when they don't uh, as we keep going, Rob, but, like, that's where it all starts is – sell them on getting better at managing their pipeline and then ask them questions so that they can come up with their own solutions. And then when they get to the right solution, say, yeah, that's the right one. Let's log that. Love it. That's so good. You also talked about the kind of a push versus a pull. Like sometimes leaders get behind and start trying to push a deal through and other times you're out trying to pull, pull help them kind of, you can do it. Any thoughts around, you know, the, the two ways of thinking and, and for our listeners that are, that are taking copious notes right now, trying to, to, to emulate what you've done. What's the best way to help people create that winning approach to helping win deals? Yeah. So uh, it's interesting is I, I've changed my metaphor a bit. Cause I realized like pushing and pulling, like, I don't know if either of them are good. Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I'm with you. I think it's, it's more about like, I can trust that the buyer knows how to buy or I can say, I know the buyer has no clue how to buy. And I, I think that that's a better way is I never trust that the buyer knows how to buy. I, what I do is I want to show them the best way to evaluate and to buy. And so that's what I mean by that is, is like um, my sellers, I want them never to say at the end of a call, all right, guys, well, hey, let's have a, uh, we'll get, let's get our next meeting on the books. And like, what do you guys think are some next steps that we need to accomplish? Uh, they'd have no clue what the next steps are. Guess who should have the clue? You as a rep. Guess what you should be doing? Selling the value of the next steps. Guess why? So you can book the next meeting and get the next step done so that you can move the deal through the pipeline. Love and it. so that's where you need to say, hey, listen, I work with a lot of people that are just like you, Rob. 
And what I found is, is if we do a technical scoping call next, it adds a lot of value to helping you understand the specific way outreach can affect these two or three workflows that your reps are in all the time. All we need to do to that is real quickly get up uh, a manager, a rep, and a sales operations person, get them in a meeting for half an hour, ask them a few questions, they'll tell me everything, and then you're going to get this cool diagram that looks like this that shows you how you work now, and then we can show you exactly how you would work with outreach. That sounds like it would really help you guys too. Like, can we book that for next Wednesday? See what I mean? Like, I didn't ask them what to do. I told them what to do, yes. but I sold the meeting. And so, you know, guess how many people say no to that? Nobody. <laughs> yeah. 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 You know what? That's super insightful. And again, I'm, you're focused on the, the engagement part of sales, not just the sales part of sales. How do we get them to be engaged? And, and that's why I love it is you're right. I, I, that's, I've never heard it quite said like that, Mark. Assume that they don't know how to buy your product. You've sold your product thousands of times. They've never bought your product. Make it easier for them to buy, right? Yeah. The way you get it, make it easy is you guide them through the process rather than expecting them to blaze a trail by themselves. Because then what you're going to get is demo after demo after demo. Well, I think I need these two more people to look at it. Oh, I better get, that's when you get stuck in that, that death trap, right? Yeah, and that's when people ask for trials, and they ask for, like you said, more demos, or they ask for a case study. They don't really want that crap. They just don't know what to ask to do next because they have never bought your stuff before, and you're not telling them what to do. So they're just going back to their knee-jerk stuff that they know. Oh, yeah, well, just send me over a case study, and I'll read it, and then we'll get back on your calendar. That's they, The reason they're saying that is is because of you because you shouldn't have let them say that because you should never have asked them. What do you want to do next? Love it. Anything else on teaching in the managed pipeline or is that kind of put a, is that kind of the net net of it? Well, no, I think the, the next part, Rob, is just to get super tactical. And Yeah, uh, I want it. What, what do you do if you set a next step, like uh, get them to agree to come to the technical scoping call? How, if that's your next step and it doesn't happen, what do you do? What do you do? Well, I think this is really important how you handle this. Now, depending on the next step, so first of all, you better have a regular cadence every week of going through these items. The first thing that you'll find is people will try to bite off more than they can chew. And so sometimes they'll set next steps and you have to help them prevent this. Uh, you have to help them uh, help prevent this is they try to do things that are like three or four or five steps all rolled into one as one next step because it sounds good and awesome. And you got to help them like unpack. Well, actually, you only got a week. So let's just do this one thing rather than your demos in three weeks. So let's not talk about that meeting that you're, let's talk about what you can do this week to make sure your demos good, right? And so you can, uh, you, you need to make sure that they're not like packing together a bunch of stuff and they're setting good, actionable next actions. But if they don't do it, this is the first thing that you would do is you say, listen, it's been a week or so, uh, since, or it's been a week since you said you wanted to do this. Uh, that's okay. Sometimes you can't get stuff done in a week. No big deal. And if they can't accomplish something that they said they were going to accomplish in a week, to me, that first time, it's no big deal. Like, we've been held accountable. They know that they said that they've done it. They know I checked on it. They're feeling a little bit uncomfortable because they said they would do it, and they didn't. They probably didn't even put the effort in to do it. But I let them off the hook that first week, and I say, listen, sometimes it takes longer than a week to do this stuff. The second week when they come back and they haven't done it, that's when you say, pointedly, did you do the actions required to get this? Did you call, email, LinkedIn, whatever you had to do? Did you do that stuff? Most reps will say yes, right? Yeah, they're doing that. Okay, 
well, we have to do something a little differently then because that's not working. And that's where you give them these arrows in the quiver, right? So, hey, you're trying to get this technical scoping call done. Why don't you send them over a case study that we have that talks about how valuable that was to this certain customer. But instead of sending the whole case study, why don't you just highlight the three sentences in there that mean the most to this person and put a big red star next to it and then send it to them and say, hey, listen, I just sent you this case study that I appended. You're going to want to look at steps like on page three where I put that big red star. There's a couple of things there that I think are really important for you to see. Uh, you know, can we get this on the uh, books after you've read that? And then you'd reference it in the phone call or whatever. But you start to give them these fun, cool, creative things that helps them get something done that just calling and emailing won't get done because maybe they don't have a sense of urgency or the prospect doesn't have a sense of urgency. So um, then after the third week of not getting something done, after they tried the creative stuff, that's when you have to get a level deeper in inspection. And you have to say, are we doing the right thing? Like maybe we shouldn't be trying to set the scoping call yet. The reason they're not agreeing to it is because we haven't set the value of outreach high enough for them to want to invest in that. So you got to ask, are we doing the right thing? If you're doing the right thing and you really believe that, you have to say, am I doing it with the right person? So maybe you're trying to get the wrong person to do the right thing and they're just not willing or able to do it. And the last is, is like, and it's great to ask yourself this all throughout the deal. Is this really a deal? If I can't get the right person to do the right thing and I feel I've sold it the right way, then this might be a deal that I can cut off right now before I waste six more months of my life trying to get them to do something. And you just answer those questions, you know, uh, Answering those questions helps you create a level of, of um, inspection and creativity that actually drives some behavior. So That's one of my favorite things about your approach. I love it. So I'll make sure I get it right for our listeners. Week one, shit happens, right? Don't, yep. don't, don't sweat it. Uh, week two, let's get creative. Let's see if we can throw a little gas on the fire. Let's see if we can dress this thing up and maybe show it the backside, not the front side. We'll, you know, we'll give it a different angle, right? And if that doesn't work, then we say step three or week three, are we doing the right thing here? Is it the right company? Is it the right fit? Is it the right person? Are we doing it the right way? And if all of those things are yes, then we maybe carry on. If any of those things are no, then we, now it's circle the wagons time, right? We, we huddle up, the, we circle the wagons and we say, how do we turn this thing from a stall into uh, let's get going again? Yeah, it means, it means if, all, if, you, if they're doing the right thing with the right person and it's really a deal, then they need to come up with a, another strategy. You know what I mean? Like it's just, if you're trying to do something for three weeks in a row and you can't get it done, then that should be a sign. Yeah, that's good. That's a killer tactic that I think people will be able to leverage right away. I, I loved it. The first time I heard you talk about that, I was like, that makes so much sense. You've just built systems around every part of, of managing your, your team. You, you're not just relying on gut feel. You've built, literally, you've built a series of systems to help you have predictability to how you start, how you find, how you advance, how you win. Every part about developing people, and I, you said something to me, Mark, that I want to maybe start to wrap this up with. You're right. Sales and, and developing salespeople are kind of one and the same if you're smart. It's not really two different motions, is it? Say that again? That Early on, you said that sales and leading salespeople, they're really similar. If you're leading salespeople the right way, you'll get the sales. The, it's, it's just really well said the way you said that earlier in this conversation. Yeah, I, I believe that. You, if you do the right things for your people, then you get the results that you want your people to get. If you just try to drive the results and you swim past the people, then you're going to just, it's just going to be super spotty. 
And it also flies in the face of hire the right people and get out of their way. Uh, I think it does a little bit. Like yeah. if you can create good enough processes, it increases your pool of people that you can hire. If you need to hire a rock star because he's the only one that can figure out how to get a deal over the line, then that should tell you that you probably don't have the processes and support in place. I love it. All right, man, we're starting to run out. Uh, I want to wrap this the way that I wrap everyone. We go rapid fire uh, three things pretty quick, and, I, and uh, I, I can't wait to hear what your answers are, bro. Let's go. Number one, biggest sales leadership challenge that sales leaders face, and how do you beat it down? Oh, geez. These aren't small questions. Come on, dude. Um, I think the biggest, the biggest thing sales leaders face I think the biggest thing that sales leaders face is something that I call the sine wave of sales, which is you start some kind of project or initiative and sales activity starts to go up, which eventually leads to meetings, which eventually leads to deals that you have to work. And what happens is, is as your deals and meetings go up, it becomes harder and harder to prospect. So your prospecting activity falls off while your deals and your meetings are still going up because there's that delay time period, but that the activities lead to to deals and meetings. And so it reinforces the behavior that I don't need to be uh, prospecting to have success. And then eventually because your activities dr dropped off, your meetings will drop off. Eventually your deals will drop off eventually. And then you're like in this up and down motion of the ocean. That it makes one reason why salespeople's lives are, are difficult, right? <laughs> uh, the, the way to, to solve it is, you uh, create the ability to have a consistent level as, of prospecting that leads to a consistent level of meetings and a consistent level of deals. And I, we can talk about it. There's quite a few ways to do that, but I think that that's the, that's the goal. Some people hire SDRs and all they do is prospecting. So your AEs don't have to. Some people, you know, have a pipe gen Tuesday where that's a four hour block of time where the AEs only do prospecting and they're not allowed to book customer or prospect meetings during that time. So focus on it. Like there's a lot of ways to solve it, but I think the best sales leaders have solved how to get like really great outbound prospecting pipeline to be a very consistent thing versus an up and down approach. I love it. The sine wave of, I love it. The sine wave of sales. I haven't heard it called that, but it's, I'm going to steal it from you. I may or may not give you credit for it, man. Uh, <laughs> Um, good answer. Thank you. That's the first time we've heard that one. Number two. Okay. This is, uh, our, our, our listeners asked us to add this to the mix. I can't wait to hear your answer. They've asked when you're hiring new people, when you're going through the process of hiring talent, is there like a go-to interview question or way of handling an interview that is, provides a lot of insight that you can share with our listeners? Yeah, I have four things that really matter here at Outreach that I suss out. Uh, through creative ways, all right? And maybe I'm giving up the ghost here by sharing this. Uh, but I'll share one with you, and she wouldn't know the other. Just one. Just one's okay. great. So for me, it's very important for a person to be able to transfer passion. And so you have to have a passion for outreach, and you have to transfer that passion to your champion, or you have no uh, – you won't be able to get the deal done. Like, they have to be passionate about what we do. So what I do is in the interview, I say, listen, tell me something that you're passionate about. And then when they tell me, I say, okay, now make me passionate about that thing. And so I had a one guy that came in one time. He's like, I'm passionate about uh, dancing. And I was like, okay, man. Like I wasn't excited. <laughs> I'm not really into dancing myself, but like get me excited about dancing. And he went in there and he's like, listen, man, 
and it was kind of boring for the first minute, but then he's like, but when you're standing in front of that crowd and it's 20 people that have been working like 10 hours a week on one move and all your uh, arms are at the exact right angle and every time your foot touches the ground, all 19 other people's feet is touching the ground and the, the echo is one noise coming back, not a bunch of tippity tap stuff. And the, the crowd is like, and you can like feel me like, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It brought me into the world and I was like, damn, let's go dancing, baby. <laughs> Like that, that's one thing for me. I want to see, can somebody get me excited about something? Can they, their passion overcome their professionalism Can mm. they make me believe in what they believe about their product that I don't right now. And so like, that's, that's one, one way that I've come up with like figuring that out. That's a great one. Thank you for sharing. That's also new. Let's that that's so good. Mark last one, man. Leaders or readers, uh, the great ones never stop trying to make themselves get better. I don't care if it's pages you're turning or audibles you're listening to or podcasts you're listening to or or uh, whatever it is, blogs. Anything you'd recommend to people that want to up their sales leadership game that they ought to put in their head? Uh, two books. One, uh, I'm about uh, two-thirds of the way through right now, and it's, it's a, a good audible book because it's not one that you necessarily want to take notes on. It's just good concepts, which is, multipliers and it's about increasing the intelligence of the people in the room and then the second one is a book uh, that my ceo manny gave me called thinking in bets by annie duke the famous uh, poker player and um this is how i would describe that book is it is one of those books that you can't read more than 10 pages a week or a month in because in 10 pages she'll blow your mind Really? Every 10 pages. Yeah. Like you, I'd be like, okay, wait, wait, I got to rethink how I do every meeting right now. Whoa, whoa. I got to rethink a little bit about what the heck does it mean to have a confirmation bias and how much is that affecting my life right now? And like, so the concepts that she puts in that thinking in bets book are like brain breakers. So that that's an unbelievably cool book. Love it. Those are so good. Dude, this was so good. I can't believe the time went by as fast as it did. I, I love hanging out with you. I appreciate you, what you're doing for our, our profession. I appreciate what you're, what outreach is doing for sales. I, I love and appreciate our friendship that we've developed. And, and thanks so much for joining us, man. You, you, you know, blew my mind on a few things today here. Any final, uh, final things you could say to our, our listeners? How do they get more from you? How do they learn more about outreach? You know, if they want to continue any of the conversation, how do they make that happen? Yeah, so uh, you can always catch me on LinkedIn. That's the easiest way. And the, the, the one little bit of advice I would do, and I've just come to this in my adult life, and this is where I'm going to stay, uh, is just enjoy people. If you enjoy the people you work with, if you enjoy the people you lead, if you enjoy the people you sell to, like things will, good things will happen. Like just enjoy it. Enjoy that they're different. Enjoy that it's a challenge. Enjoy when it's easy. Enjoy when it's like a perfect conversation. Enjoy when it's a crappy conversation. Like, if you just enjoy people, like life all of a sudden becomes awesome. So like start with that and then everything else will kind of flow through. So good, dude. Thank you so much, Mark. Been my pleasure having you on the show. And as I say to everyone, brother, happy selling. Robbie Jeff. See you, man. Hey everyone. Welcome to another. So what portion of the sales leadership podcast where we break down that interview and we ask ourselves, why did that conversation even matter? And you don't have to be the smartest tool in the shed to understand why you need to take Mark Kosoglo's, uh playbook and his insights around building a high-growth sales engine seriously. He started with some of his story. I loved his story. As he, in his own words, he said, we started it worth about 37 bucks, and we've grown it in a pretty short period of time to a billion, two at their most recent funding and growing. And 
you know, his great success is evident. It's undeniable. He's done what everybody else is like trying to talk about doing. And what, what they've done for sales is awesome. What outreach has done for sales is awesome. How they're helping drive the engagement category is awesome. And what they do for sales people and the customers are like is awesome. And at the end of the day, his approach has worked. And you should look at it. I endorse it. I know Mark. I've got to hang out with him on the road when I was got to speak at several, several of their events. I, I listened to him. I had dinner with him. I, we, we, we talked shop. I'm telling you, this is a guy that knows what he's talking about. And I had to have him on the show. Um, it was interesting to me how he started really the, the whole approach to what makes him and his way of thinking as a leader work. He wants big growth without having to have big headcount. And I like that because a lot of what I would call immature sales leaders are really focused on how many people they lead rather than how much impact they have. And he, he, I loved how he said it. He said, I would rather have people make double the money and manage half of the people so I can have higher touch. And, and, and that's so insightful. So many times I do have leaders tell me that, you know, they're worried about what their headcount is and they want bigger headcount and they want to, you know, have a bigger span of control. And my advice to sales leaders everywhere is we should be thinking about how efficient are we in creating a dollar? What's our efficiency? How hard is that for us to go earn a buck? And that's why I think that the right metrics are around our efficiency in creating revenue for the organization. And in my opinion, the, what I think the, the most interesting metric for a sales leader is revenue per rep. That's the best way that I've found to know what kind of impact we're having as a leader. Uh, how good are we at getting more revenue per salesperson uh, with generally in the same territory and the same people? And, and as we scale people, do we scale that revenue per rep? And can we find ways to get more? It's the great equalizer. It's a really great way to know how we are doing as a leader. And I think that we're going to see more of those types of metrics come. You know, I, 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 I've spent a lot of time talking about this and thinking about this. And I think the next segue into how we, we break this down comes in Mark as he really broke out, broke down why process was so important. I loved when he said process you know, and systems are how you solve problems. And if you got a problem, that means you either don't have a, a, a process or a system for it or the process or system you have isn't working well enough. And it's time to go back and look at that. And, and it was good because he said, too often we think that the sales rep is the point of failure. And we need to look at the point. first point of failure is, do we have a good enough system as a leader? And I really thought that was insightful. That's how, that's how he went on to say, that's how we can make the things we ask managers do. He says, we ask, what we ask of sales managers is impossible. But the only way we can make it possible is great systems because that's the only way it scales. And so that's what I think is why it's so important to be looking at leaders. You know, when you look at the, the rep as the fail point, one rep is responsible for one rep, but one leader is responsible for eight to 10 reps. So we really ought to be looking at the volume and the conversion and the productivity and all those types of things, all the metrics that would surround the activities that a leader does, and ultimately, how is that driving revenue per rep? Because if we could start saying, are we enabling our leaders the right way, I think you would start to see sales take on a whole never, another level of effectiveness, efficiency, and impact. You know, I was, I, I think that coaching and leadership is the next big thing of sales. I was, I was drawing a chart when I was on site with one of my customers just last week. And I went up and I drew on the board kind of what I think the evolution of sales is. And in the 80s, it was spin selling. And in the 90s, it was solution selling. And in the early 2000s, it was insight selling. Um, and, and we got into the 2010s. It started to be, um, 
selling at scale, that's when the sales stack started to really emerge, and we started getting all these these tools. And now we have 12, 14, 15 tools per rep, per org. And, and I think that the next big thing is going to be um, this leader this leadership type sale where you'll have sales done at scale, not because of the tools, um, but because you're now getting more revenue per rep because of the impact of coaching and leaders. I think you're about to see a whole new set of, of metrics emerge. I think you're about to see a whole new set of tools emerge. And most of all, I think you're about to see a whole new set of rules and roles that leaders are going to have to follow and accept if they're going to be successful as the next big thing in sales hits. And so, you know, I want to kind of wrap it up with what I thought was a good way that Mark finished. You know, Gary Vaynerchuk's talked about this. You've heard me refer to it. He always talks about context and content in terms of getting attention from a marketing perspective. I think the same is true content versus context as a leader. Too many leaders say I'm data-driven, and they just rely on the reports. They rely on the data. Um, Mark and I had a great conversation around the hard part is knowing so what. What do you do about it? Stop looking backwards and reading the box scores. Start looking forwards and being the leader and say, this is what we do. And if you can identify what needs to be done, then you're solving the hardest problem, okay? You, and Mark said it really well. you got to be binary. we got to start having coaching goals that are either do or don't do. It's not I'll try. we got to make sure that we have these coaching goals that are not dependent on customer outcomes. They're just dependent on the, the rep choosing I'm going to change my behavior. So when he talked about pipeline, we have binary goals around achieving customer verified outcomes. Either it did or did not happen. And, and so the more binary you can get as a coach, I think the more successful you'll be. And so I want to thank Mark. It was an amazing conversation. Congrats to him and the outreach team for what they've done. Thanks to each of you for listening. Thanks for suggesting such great uh, guests to be on the show. Thank you for giving us the, the uh, reviews and ratings and keep those five-star ratings coming. But most of all, don't worry. Just execute because we got you. Thanks for joining us for the Sales Leadership Podcast, your weekly pipeline to the most successful thought leaders and rainmakers in sales. Make sure to check out additional episodes at salesleadershippodcast.com. The Sales Leadership Podcast is produced by Brian Jepson and is sponsored by Exvoyant, the modern sales leadership platform for salesforce.com users. You can visit Exvoyant at exvoyant.com.